Now, yeah. Okay, D Dave is hand handing out a new handout about the brothers, so everybody should be taking this one. And then I'll hand out others from the past for those who missed them. Is this too loud or is it about right? It sounds about right to me. Okay, so everybody get the new handout from Dave. It's, let me say something about it, that I'm handing you out Dostoevsky things that go ahead of where we are, but I'm assuming you're going ahead reading Dostoevsky and therefore you need the charts that go ahead with Dostoevsky. And you keep them and bring them to lectures uh, because I'll be talking about the, the, the stuff on each of the charts, not all today, but soon. Okay, so now, has everybody got that chart? Because there's so many other charts left over from other times that people might want, but I can't, uh, Beatrice, are you giving out that chart too? Good. That's the, that, the, Beatrice and David have the same chart, and it's the new one. It tells you about the family's tree of the brothers, and on one side, I hate to waste trees, so I went far ahead on the other side, and gave you something about the Grand Inquisitor, which you shouldn't read or try to understand yet till we've read and talked about the Grand Inquisitor. But the important thing is to keep reading the brothers, because otherwise we, it was fine to extend the paper, but you can't, if we extend the, we can't extend the time on Dostoevsky or we'll run out of Nietzsche, and that wouldn't be so good. So you've got to, and, and I would hate to tell you this, the plot, let, let, the real reason for reading fast and staying ahead, well, there are two real reasons. One reason is, well, let me, before, okay, let's, let's hand out another one now. Uh, some of the back ones. Uh, let's see. Yeah, the last, the one from, uh, the, anybody want the chart from last time, which is the characters on one side and an important diagram about the self on the other, right? Is it, is it the self on the other? Yeah, that's very important. I mean, the, as I'll start explaining today, Dostoevsky has a view of the self exactly like Kierkegaard's. But I want to say one more thing about why I keep 
harping on reading. One, three things. One, the book is deceptively little because uh, following your requests, I have found the littlest copy in, in microprint practically so you can carry it around, but don't get fooled. It's a big fat book. If it was, if it was normal, it would look four times as big as it does with no margins and so forth. So you've got to have time to read it. Secondly, it's important always to read it before I talk about it so that you form your own opinions and mark it up and then read it again later when you're writing a paper and, and you will have your markings because you won't be able to read the whole book again. So you mark it up as you read it, you mark it up as I talk about it, and then you find your way around in it. Okay, yeah, Beatrice is laying, putting those down there. There's one more here, I think. Yeah, the paper topic. The pa paper topics again, and what's on the back? More paper topics. I guess same paper topic. Uh, here's a hand over here. Uh, she wants a paper topic. Okay, where was I? One, it's the book is deceptively small. It's really huge. And secondly, you, you should be reading it because before I lecture about it. And third, and most important, that as happens in the, in the realm of the spirit, the good people get rewarded and the bad people get punished. This is a great murder mystery. It's, it's one of the best murder mysteries ever written. It's that you, but, I, but I can't help as we go along telling you at least who gets murdered, which is already something, but I will try not to tell you until near the end who did it, because that will spoil it for you. But if, if you haven't kept up with the reading, I'm going to have to give away the plot, and then so that the good people will be, will be rewarded and the people who haven't been kept up will end up suffering by losing a real big chunk of excitement. Okay, that's all I want to say about it. I want somebody, where's Dave? Dave, help, help. Oh, come and put on the microphone, please. Okay, thanks. Here we go. Now, we're, there are two things. I could start to, right away onto the brothers. I've been thinking about the brothers, and you should be thinking about them. But on the other hand, I know you're thinking about Kierkegaard and your papers. Therefore, if there are questions left over about Kierkegaard, I think we should start discussing Kierkegaard. And when it's clear that we've run out of what we have to discuss about Kierkegaard, we will switch to the brothers. So, are there, are there people harboring questions left over from their reading or paper writing or discussion sections that they want to discuss? Aha. Uh -huh. Well, that's an interesting surprise. Okay. Uh, I think I, I have a bunch of little things I want to discuss, so I'll do it briefly since it doesn't seem to be... Here's the, here's the other four. What we need is my lecture. Okay, I made some notes of things that people talked about in office hours. You want a paper or you want to say something? I have a question. Okay. How does Callaway, how does he describe his hero not a knife of reputation? Uh, well, let's see. A Callaway, yeah, because I, I, I had a discussion with the TAs who want to make uh, Holly Martin a tragic hero, but I don't. 
But let's see, Calloway for me is a tragic hero because he, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of funny. What does a tragic hero do? He has a role and that gives him a duty to, uh, to uh, which is universal. That is, anybody with that role ought to do such and such. And what he does is intelligible because he does what his role requires. His role is to keep people from getting hurt. And he does that. And so far, that's already sort of getting him into the ethical. But then, this is trickier. There are two things a tragic hero can do, I think. Subordinate a lower ethical to a higher ethical. So you can read Agamemnon as having a duty of a father to love his and take care of his daughter, but he subordinates that because it's his duty as king to take care of his troops. Or you could read a tragic a hero as putting mediation above immediacy. Then you would say, well, he's a tragic hero because, Agamemnon is, because he puts his love for his daughter which is a strong feeling, but it's still lower immediacy. I mean, we're assuming he hasn't got an unconditional commitment to his daughter, but he, he feels strongly about her. He puts that below his duty as a policeman. And now, but we haven't, oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said policeman. That's, that's Agamemnon. But now we switch to Calloway. Calloway had, does his duty as policeman, and he does it. It's not a big deal, but it's, it's moving. When pain is, is killed, it's, it's ob- I think it's supposed to be clear that he cares a lot for pain. And they are, they've really been together a long time and they really like each other, respect each other. Because he drops everything and goes to pain's body and, and tries to revive him or, or cry over him. I don't know what he's doing exactly. But whatever he's doing, he suddenly realizes that his duty and his role of keeping people from getting hurt requires that he drop pain and run after Holly, who's done another stupid thing and is running down the, the sewers, exposing himself to be shot. So that's my conclusion. He's a, a tragic hero who subordinates either a lower ethical, which I don't see what the lower ethical would be. It might be something like uh, uh, take care of your subordinates or something, but I don't think that's important. He subordinates a lower something, either lower immediacy or lower ethical, to what's important, his role, which is a recognized role and which is intelligible to everybody, and it's clear that he does the right thing when he drops pain and runs after Holly. How's that? Is that, that answer you? Are you satisfied? Yes. Okay. No follow-up? Uh, why would he not be a knight of resignation? Because I don't think he's got an unconditional commitment to anybody. I th- not to pain, that would be odd. Uh, you know, see what I mean? You took... Okay, good. Yes? Why does what? Ah, okay, Holly, yeah, this is where it got interesting in office hours discussing this. Uh, Holly is clearly meant to be a fool, as Hannah tells him he is, and he's not sensible. But when, when, uh, um, I, I, meant, I meant to mention this, when names are so important, you get a, a sort of, the names get emphasized. And at one point, Calloway says, something, something, that be sensible, Martins. 
And he said, Martin's, Holly Martin says, I haven't got a sensible name, Calloway. He's not sensible. What he does is not intelligible. It's, he's not, there is no universal role for vigilantes who go about deciding on their own what's right and wrong and going around sort of cleaning up uh, without, without judicial procedures or anything. He's, he's a loner. Uh, he's the lone sheriff of Santa Fe. Isn't that the name of the book? Uh-huh, great. So he, and, and there is no such thing as role of, role of, young, of lone sheriff, I think. Uh, we can recognize it as something people do, but it's not something that comes with a certain bunch of duties which we respect and so forth. That's why I don't think Holly is, Holly shouldn't be anything respectable. Holly is just a very foolish, naive, dangerous person. Uh, he's just as much a villain, or more, more, I think, in the way the book works, than, than Harry Lyme. Though Harry Lyme's killed a lot of people off stage, kids off stage, which is pretty serious, uh, the, the, all the people on stage get killed by some influence or other of Holly. And in general, there, there is a look of melancholy that goes across uh, Harry Lyme's face. And when, and when uh, Holly asks him, what do you believe? He says he believes in God, and I think he does. I think he believes in God and that he's a sinner and that he can't help being selfish and that he's going to go to hell and that, he, that that's pretty awful, uh, the awfulest thing that can happen to somebody who has made their own interests and their own desires. The, 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 you can't say sort of defining thing in, the, in their life, I think, because I think that's too empty as to say I'm defined by my desires. And that my desires are changing all the time. And, and I don't change my identity every time my desires change the way I do every time, uh, if there is a time, that my uh, unconditional commitment changes. Uh, okay, more. I, I'm always ready to talk about the third man. I love the third man. Uh, but I'm ready also, and I think I like it that you're not saying anything more, because I really want to go on and do... The brothers, but before I do, I want to look at four pages that I marked as something that I might want to say. Oh yeah, I wanted to say a few quick things that I didn't think came across clear enough. That I, I, maybe you all understand this, but to to be a knight of faith and to be a human being who is totally fulfilled and, and in bliss and so forth is at the same time to be in anguish. That's the whole point of this peculiar religion that's so unlike Buddhism or any other religion, I suppose, but Buddhism's the only one I really know a little about. But anyway, the idea of the Greek kind of religions, and, and Buddhism may have influenced Plato, is, you know, is to get happiness by getting rid of suffering, by getting rid of the contradiction. Whereas starting with well, really, starting with Jesus, Pascal would say, but we, we, starting by being recognized by Pascal anyway, there's something absolutely special about Christianity. It recognizes the contradictoriness of the self, and it recognizes that you can't have bliss without anguish. They just go together. Was that clear? How many thought that was clear already, and I'm wasting my breath? Uh, well, then it was worth saying. How many thought it wasn't clear already, and they've been enlightened? Uh, well, hardly worth saying. But anyway, uh, I, I'm happy to see that you can raise your hand, you can move your arms. Um, let's see now, what else is here? 
And the question about somebody asked, these are good questions that come up in office hours. Can you fall back into despair once you've been out of despair? I think not. I think, I mean, to get out of despair, you have to have been in despair and saved by having a defining commitment in a way that nothing could ever take it away from you. That second clause is the important thing. Once you've got a defining relation, you might lose it, and that might lead you to despair, like the French woman. But if you've got a defining relation and faith, then you will always have a new Isaac, and you will always somehow have a new ethical, though you can't picture what that could mean in either case. But, uh, but, the, but the point is, there's, in the world of the spirit, nothing bad can happen to you if you've got faith. That's the divine comedy. If it good, the, the good wins out always and the bad loses always. And once you've got faith and an unconditional commitment and therefore are out of despair, you're always out. And it, it's a related to a phrase of Paul's, which I find interesting, in the Bible, St. Paul, of being a slave to righteousness. I think that that means when you're in the right relation to, to, to unconditional commitment and to the field of, of, of all things are possible, nothing can get you out of it. I'm not sure that's right. I, I put that as a challenge. I can't quote any Kierkegaard that says it. Okay. I think that might be it. Yeah, okay, yeah. I don't think you can tell from the outside. Uh, for instance, if we hadn't seen the French woman give her moan of utter uh, sadness uh, and know the whole context in which that happened in the movie, if we had just sort of walked in and seen her, we wouldn't have recognized that as despair unless we were Kierkegaard or Dostoevsky, some very sensitive person. I mean, there is something about the glide of a person with uh, infinite resignation, which if you were sensitive, you could see it. And you know, if you read Kierkegaard, that all nights of infinite resignation are in despair. So you, in principle, ought to be, could recognize them, I think. But most of the time, I think, uh, you couldn't. And lots of the time, they don't even know they're in despair. So it isn't as if, I mean, I can't say to Beatrice, well, they don't, you can't recognize them, but if they at least know. No, they don't know. I mean, we're back to that again. All of you are in despair, and very few of you know it. And not all of you. Almost all of you are in despair. Some of you may be Knights of Faith sitting out there. And, but, and the Knights of Faith know it because they're in anguish and bliss at the same time, but lots of you are in despair and you don't know it. But when you finally do get pushed into despair by, you will know that you always were because there's only one way that a human life can work and that is by having an infinite unconditional commitment which gets together the finite and the infinite and the temporal and the eternal and the possible and necessary and does it in a way in the field of faith, in the field of all things are possible and thereby is out of is in bliss and anguish okay that's 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 it i'm ready to go to the brothers you're ready to go to the brothers how many have been reading the brothers 
Oh, well, that's sure we should go to the brothers. Absolutely, right away. I'm happy we're there. Okay. Everybody's with me. Uh, Now, I've got to tell you some background things, which uh, you you probably have figured out for yourself, but it just helps to make them clear. You've surely figured out for yourself all the brothers are very young. They're pretty much your age, maybe a little older, in their early 20s. Uh, and that, but and something else you may begin to notice. How, how, many, how many have read other Russian novels? How, how many have read War and Peace? How, but a lot of you have read Crime and Punishment. How many have read Crime and Punishment? Okay. Well, you know in Russian novels that characters have so many names that it's hard to keep track. That's why I gave you the name chart. That is, uh, but I'm going to tell you something that isn't something you can't see from the chart. That is, to begin with, let's just, I once had the inspiration, I think, to discover, to say to myself and to you that it isn't just Russian novels where everybody has so many names you can hardly keep track. American novels have it too. It's just we're so used to it that we don't even notice that characters can have something like five or six different, very different names, and we know that they're all the same. Here's my example. This guy, Mr. Smith, is William, Bill, Billy, Will, and Willie, at least. And I probably left some out. Uh, now, what's important is, one, to see that when you read it, you have no trouble as they come around recognizing that William, oddly enough, is the same person as Bill. I'm always amazed that, what is it, John is the same person as Jack, but I've finally gotten used to it. That's right, isn't it? I think so. But, uh, but we, you get used to it. But the one thing I'm going to tell you that you don't notice and my chart doesn't tell you either, is that it's important what of these many names the person is called. That is, uh, it's important to know uh, who call, that, that some people are, that you call, who calls, well, the, my favorite example is, in this case, Charlie. Charlie Brown is called Charlie by everybody. When one day the girl who cares a lot about him, I forget what her name is, calls him Charles, it's just an amazing shock to everybody. And it, the same goes on here. It's very, you've got to be tuned in to which names are being used for these people. Now, for instance, uh, Mitya is, how many know? Dimitri. Dimitri is Mitya. And people call Dimitri Mitya about half the time meaning that he's sort of on friendly relations with half the people and, and sort of more impersonal relations with the other half. Now, that's not at all true of Alexei. Who is Alexei? It's harder for you to even know. Alyosha. But practically nobody calls him Alexei. Oh, the narrator, maybe. But all the people in the book are on friendly terms with him, and so everybody calls him Alexei. Can you think of which brother nobody calls by a nickname? Almost nobody. I finally found occasional. Ivan. Yep, the narrator always calls him Ivan. Everybody calls him Ivan. One person calls him Vanka, and that is his father, uh, old Karamazov. And way late in the book, there's a song about Vanka, which if you don't recognize that that's really a song about Ivan, you miss something very important that's happening, which I missed for years, because how should you know that that that, that, that Vanka song is taken to heart by, when, by, by Ivan when he hears it? So let's see now. We've done Dmitri, Alexei, 
Yvonne, uh, seems to me somebody's missing. Uh, well, there are two people missing. Old Karamazov, who, who, I, I forget what they call him. What, who do they, what, what's his, does he have a first name? I just made it up. What? Theodore, of course. So, and he's called, and, and uh, Freud was very interested in the fact that old Karamazov is called, that, that, that the father, uh, because Fyodor Dostoevsky is also called Fyodor. And you might want to ask yourself, what is it, why is, why is Dostoevsky giving this villain in the book his own name? But I, I don't have any interesting answer to that. I don't think Freud did either. But uh, it's, there is probably something going on there. Uh, so, and finally, well, let's go through one more. Shmerdikov. I'm pretty sure Shmerdikov doesn't have any nickname. Or Shmerdikov is his nickname, I think, more likely. I, I just don't know why. But it's, since he's practically not human, nobody has, I mean, the, the distinction, nobody has an intimately friendly relation to him or a, or a formal relation to him. They more or less treat him like what he is, a lackey, and they have a, a, whatever you have relation to, to your, your valet and your lackey. Uh, okay, I think I've covered them, but I just want to scan it now. Let's see. Yeah, okay. And now to the big deal things. The self. The, the amazing fact is uh, that Dostoevsky has exactly the same view of the self as uh, Kierkegaard. I don't know how they both got it. I, 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 I think they both probably, almost surely, read Pascal. And it's sort of in Pascal, I mean, that there are the self with contradictory factors and the factors that give you something to be proud of and something to be ashamed of in, in Pascal. But I really am amazed that, and I think maybe, maybe, maybe somebody way over in the podcast world, who knows where, in Russia or someplace, will be able to send me email telling me why, how it could happen that these, that this great, this very complicated idea should show up in these two different people who almost surely didn't read each other's work. But we're going to read it. But you won't see any reference to the self in the brothers, so you may well think that I'm leading you astray. What's the word for the self in this book? Yeah, you, yes, if you're, you've got it in your hand. I, I, what? I, haven't you? The heart, exactly. The way, where you'll see before the end of today, maybe, that, the, that the, it's clear as can be that one of the characters says the heart is contradictory and it's too broad and I'd have it narrower and so forth and so forth. And, and the heart there is, there's no special, you can call it heart or self, whatever you want. It's this something or other that's at the center of what it is to be a human being. So, and, and another thing, as in Kierkegaard, but it's clearer in, in Dostoevsky, as, as he, he, because uh, Kierkegaard just says it, but Dostoevsky shows it, that there are these ways of relating to yourself. Uh, the way, it's harder to say that your heart relates to itself, but, it, but somehow what it is to be a self, or what, your, what kind of heart you have, funny way you think, is is now, and this is the important thing, 
which is the right one, which is the good way. Let's go back to Kierkegaard talk that the self relates to the self. Well, Kierkegaard's got an answer. It's relating to itself by relating to another and having an unconditional commitment for that other. And that only that way can you get all the factors together. And that's what he says. The Dostoevsky shows you four different ways of relating to the self because there are four Karamazovs. That is, there are the three sons and the father. There are really four and a half Karamazovs, counting Smerzhikov, but I don't think he has a heart. Uh, but in, in any case, Dostoevsky shows you the right way to relate to your, to the, the self should relate to the, your, itself by showing you various ways of doing it. That is, we see how Alyosha relates to himself, how Ivan does, how Dmitri does, how old Karamazov does, and we see which ones work. That is, the only test isn't sort of a Bible telling you or reason telling you or nature telling you or Kierkegaard telling you. The Dostoevsky wants you to just see these lives and see for yourself which ones lead to joy and bliss and which ones lead to despair and madness. And when you see that, you will understand you know, which, which is the wrong way and which is the right way to go. I mean, I'm not sure that it's easy to choose something as deep as this. It may be that it takes some kind of grace to go the right way. I mean, nobody in the book chooses their way of being a self. They, they, they start with it when the book begins. And, but one thing is sure, uh, how you should relate yourself to yourself depends, is, is shown by what becomes of you. So you've got to watch and see in the book what becomes of all these people. Um, the, there's really eight of them. Why, why, are there, why do I say there's eight of them instead of four of them? Well, I'll show you in a minute, but you, I can tell you a general principle already, which insofar as I've read books about the brothers, which I have read very few, and I would be happy when I say things if people would tell me, again, out there in the big world, which whether I am, whether somebody's already said that and I should give them credit, or whether somebody said the opposite and I should make clear to warn you that they're wrong. In any case, uh, what I, there are eight of them, and that's because subtly, you don't even notice it the first four or five times you read it, if you can live that long. Uh, the, uh, the, for every Karamazov, there is a double, an existential double. And the, the existential double has exactly the same stand on the self as the, the brother. And even the old father, which is what I'm going to start with, has his existential double. So we're going to start with that in a minute. But let me see first. Um, so I went back to what I said of reading my notes. We have, you have to be aware of which orientation each of the brothers has so that you can learn from which one works and which one leads to madness and suffering and perhaps suicide. Okay. Uh, or one more way, I just like to keep saying this because it's important. In existential philosophy, a view of how to live isn't tested by argument it's by, of any sort, but by action. You commit yourself to it and act on it, and then you see how you come out. Uh, every one of them is an extreme version of the position they're in and something extreme happens to them, which is a comment on that way of, of being. 
way of existing, if you want to say existential. Okay, now, for one more thing in background, and then we'll get to old Theodore. Okay, all the Teramatsas are related to each other in interesting ways, and Dostoevsky thinks heredity is very important. So, in the history of the family chapter, we learn that old Teramatsav, the father, has two wives so that the brothers have different mothers. Dimitri's mother is Adelaida, and his personality is related to hers. Remember, she's hot-headed and uh, impulsive and passionate and also strong and beats up, beats up old Karamazov. Uh, and, and, and people choose professions, by the way, which of course fit their heredity and their stand on the self, too. What profession has Dimitri got? Yeah, so soldier. He's in the army. He had a tough, strong, aggressive mother, and he's tough and strong and aggressive too. Um, now, what's really much more interesting is that Ivan and Alyosha have the same mother, Sophia. Sophia is a is a kind of religious person, very weak and uh, meek. I'm going to say not weak. She's weak too, but that's not important. Meek, and uh, she is uh, has, to my amazement, you learn something new every time you read this. Uh, I didn't ever notice before. She has the kind of um, mental condition that ha ha she experiences devils. Where I wrote that in the back of my book because I was so surprised. Uh, I'll tell you why I'm so surprised in a minute. You'll be surprised too. On page eleven, the, in the middle of the page, in the end, the, this unhappy Sophia, kept in terror from her childhood, fell into that kind of nervous disease which is most frequently found in peasant women who are said to be possessed by the devil. I say that it's amazing because guess what? Both Alyosha and Ivan are confronted, are confronted by the devil. By, but Dimitri couldn't be further, or devils wouldn't be interested in Dimitri, and Dimitri's not interested in devils. But, but Sophia is in this religious dimension, and she is a kind of perfectly Christian person, but uh, perfectly Christian people can, and even Alyosha does, have a confrontation with, with the devil. Uh, well, you'll see that, but that's a long way away. So let's go back to where I am. Uh, so here we got two brothers. What in the world do they have in common? Ivan, you'll see, but you know already, is an intellectual. Uh, I don't know about you, but let's find out. When I read it, I identified with Ivan. He was my favorite character. He went to the university. He had a, he had a, a job to support himself. He was, in work, he was on work study. He, uh, he uh, studied philosophy and, and science, what would be called natural philosophy in those days. Uh, but I'm, uh, maybe you didn't. How many identify with Ivan? Okay, that's interesting. How many? You may not read it far enough to know yet. How many identify with Dimitri? See, Dimitri's furthest from us. Okay, I thought so too. Well, how many identify with Alyosha? Ah, well, that's nice. You're you're onto something I wasn't onto when I was reading it, in, 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 when I, I guess in, when I was a freshman. 
so okay, so uh, but we don't ha- we don't understand yet what Ivan and Alyosha have in common. What they have in common is something that I can't really explain. I can only I don't even know if I can find a name for it. Uh, I'll explain it when I get there. But can I? Well, roughly, each in their own way is concerned with purity. But what purity means to Ivan and what purity means to Alyosha are totally different. And yet, they go back to this that this mother, purity is simply not on Dmitri's mind, nor on his mother's mind as she beats up old, Fer- uh, old Theodore. Um, so Dmitri certainly couldn't be the brother the, 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 of of either of those two brothers without having they're introducing a different wife. Yeah. Ivan and uh, Alyosha. Yeah, well, I think that's right, but I think there's a deeper thing. But I, I, I don't disagree about that. But I and I'm not in a position to tell you the deeper thing yet. And I can't think of any reason to disagree about to you because Dimitri is certainly confused a lot, and uh, no, there's no other candidate for clarity of thinking but those two. I grant, I grant you, and that's fine. Uh, I suppose Zosima, but he doesn't count as a Karamazov. It has clarity of mind. Okay, let's go on. Um, so now I'm going to talk about them, and in the order, I think, at least I never thought about what order I'm doing it in, but we'll see whether I do it right. I would like to talk about them in the order that Kierkegaard talks about, the various ways that the self relates to itself. So if I did that, who would be the first one to talk that I should talk about? Well, let's discuss. Who's, what's the first way that the self relates to itself? Lower immediacy, somebody says. Spiritlessness, Kierkegaard says. Not even despair, but, but something lower than despair. And uh, who could, who, which of the four Karamazovs could that be? Old Theodore, absolutely. So let's look at the... Now, now I have an interesting problem, but it only is temporary. The, Somebody has my copy of the lecture notes, which have the page numbers that I need as I talk about it. You have them? Okay, good. I'll trade. Thank you. Uh, no, 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 no. I, I can see why you think that. But that, no, we've got to find mine where I've written in the page numbers because. I don't want to rail at this, but I really am annoyed. Every time I teach it, I get a new, a new book comes out. No, it's a different one. No, no, that's Kierkegaard. Every time I teach it, a new book comes out, and they manage to break a new introduction, and that changes the page numbers. So somebody somewhere must have a copy of my lecture notes in which the page numbers are there. Oh, thank goodness. I would really go crazy if I didn't have them. I spent two hours copying page numbers from this, which is exactly the same book, except that it's it, in this. And they've reset the type even so that the lines aren't at the same places on the page. It's a, they've, they've done everything to make it impossible to use this one when you're teaching the brothers. And that's nice. They made you all buy it. And, and that's... But it's not nice at all if you've got your page numbers and you have to rewrite them all in, the, the, in, in your in, ah, in your in each each book. 
I'm going to find one that stays constant. But then, I, then, it, then it won't be small. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. So, so it looks like we start on page 19 when we're talking about Karamazov. And no. Ah, I remember. You start on page 3 when you're t- in this book, 19 in this book. Ack. Okay, here we are. Uh, starting on page 3, right at the beginning, we hear about him, about 10 lines down, that he was a person when fairly frequently to be, fairly frequently to be met with, despicable, vicious man, and at the same time, senseless. And in another translation, muddled. Uh, I don't think either one of those are quite right. Uh, I, and I wish my Russian people were here, but I trust they will hear this in podcast. Uh, I don't know. It may be the same Russian word that's being translated senseless and muddled. And I don't know the Russian word, but I want to translate it uh, d- distracted. Because he's not at all senseless. He's a very successful businessman, quite rich. And he's very good at selling and buying property and getting people to give him uh, uh, sort of mortgages, which they then default on and so forth. But uh, so I don't think he's senseless. And I don't think he's muddled in the sense that he's able to carry on fancy theological conversations with Ivan and friendly sort of almost uh, sort of religious conversations with Alyosha. And uh, he's 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 very clever in a, in a self, selfish uh, sort of way. But he is distracted. By distracted, and you know, that's, that's Pascal's word. for the, And now what does Pascal use it for? You'll, if you went back at, at your notes, you would see that for Pascal, people distract themselves from recognizing their miserable human condition and the fact that they're going to go to hell if they don't shape up. And then they do things like, uh, you know, remember, play, play games and, and, and uh, hunt and dance. And uh, they would certainly play computer games if they had them. And these are all, and these, those are all ways to avoid thinking about their existential condition. And that's, and that's the word you should have in there where it says that he was senseless. Um, and so he's got these sharp business practices, just to show you, once I, once I went through marking up this book, I might as well show off. At the bottom of 21, he's, he's, he gets good security and he, get, and he makes people pay their debts and so forth. But now comes the new part. At the bottom of 21, I want to read this. Of, and this is sort of his distraction. Of late, he looked somehow bloated and seemed more irresponsible, even une- more uneven and sunken into a sort of incoherence used to be, used to begin one thing and go on with another as though he were letting himself go altogether. He was more and more frequently drunk. That's not senselessness or muddledness. That's, that's, he's, he's trying not to think about something. And we have to figure out what he's trying not to think about. What, what he, in, in drunkenness, money-making, uh, women chasing and so forth, what is he avoiding? Well... He's, he's not actually conscious of having a self. He's not aware of a contradiction. He's not aware that he's in, in despair. But he's, all that is there in the way he behaves. So, uh, and, and you see it in two places at least. 
on page six, a great revealing story at the end of the first chapter. How, what happens when Adelaide, the first wife, dies? She died at the end of the first paragraph quite suddenly in a garret, according to one story of typhus or another version had it of starvation. Now, that seems like an innocuous sentence, but that's a very relatively important sentence because it requires me to, to point out that the Brothers Karamazov is supposedly written by somebody who, not too bright, who lives in the town where all this took place. It's got what technically people call sometimes an obtuse narrator, which means that you have to sort of see through what the narrator says to what's really going on. Now, it's, it could be very important. There are books, whole books, that are written just that way, and, and that's the game. But Dostoevsky's not very interested in this game because after a few chapters, the obtuse narrator sort of fades out and Dostoevsky takes over and begins to describe stuff that the narrator could never know, what people were thinking and what was going on in some other town and so forth. But when, the, uh, when this obtuse narrator is being obtuse and narrating, he's got this idea that people, uh, that, that there's only one cause for things. So either she died of typhus or she died of starvation. But why not both? I mean, you could die, you, you, it may be really technically, you could, you'd have to say, well, finally, what does the coroner's report say? But it's clear that, that this is sort of a, a kind of condition of, of being uh, badly nourished in, in, and on your own. Now, that's a minimal one. But it turns out that it gets maximum in the next paragraph. What gets maximum is the peculiar quality of the narrator to talk as if people's, people couldn't have contradictory impulses. They either do something for this reason or that reason. Whereas Dostoevsky is constantly smuggling in that people always have contradictory impulses and usually do things for at least two contradictory reasons. He talks about that in his notebooks about double motives. So, so he's invented a, a, a truce narrator who sees these double motives but doesn't really understand them. Now, in the next paragraph, is, that happens. He says, this is the narrator saying, Fedor Karamazov was drunk when he heard of his wife's death, and the story is that he ran into the street and began shouting with joy, raising his hands to heaven, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. But others say he wept without restraint like a little child, so much so that people were sorry for him in spite of the repulsion he aroused. It's quite possible that both versions were true, that he rejoiced at his release and at the same time wept for her who released him. So he's, he's sort of there, he sort of sees that there might be two motives, but he doesn't see that they're sort of opposed motives because he says, as a general rule, people, even the wicked, are much more naive and simple-hearted than we suppose, and we ourselves are too. Now, if you see the funny conclusion, he, show, he, he, he sees that old Karamazov is not naive and simple-hearted, that he sort of hates his wife and loves his wife. And then he concludes somehow that they are. And it's typical of him, even when he sees the, the people acting out of double motives, he thinks that it's simple and that somehow uh, he doesn't understand what Dostoevsky very much believes and understands that people are just full of contradictory impulses because they've got a contradictory self and it comes out in all these, these ways. So anyway, there he is um, 
And now what else have we got? I've got to find out where we are. Oh, here we are. Uh, on 21 and 22. I'm just giving you a picture of old Karamazov still. We have time. Um, you know, he's letting himself go and be getting drunk. I've got that already. Uh, okay, we're going to go to another place in a minute, but first I will get, bring you up to date there. Um, so we've seen, we're seeing that all that Karamazov has very sort of down-to-earth and bad impulses and, and, and even somehow good impulses and that he sort of gives into them at random uh, or at, to it both at once. Uh, the, what, he, what we hear about often is the earthly, earthly and the lofty impulses. That's one of the ways that the, the, the factors are described. You've got to get used to the fact, obviously, that the factors aren't going to be called infinite and finite, temporal and eternal, possible and necessary. The factors are called all sorts of other things. And lofty and wacky opposition is one of the oppositions. Uh, you can see it on the chart. Different characters have different ways of describing the oppositions, but they're always a sort of, a, a, you could say, roughly heavenly and earthly um, impulses. Now, now we want to go to the place where it comes out most clearly what old Karamazov is trying to hide. Uh, there are other places in here which I couldn't find in the time I had to redo all the pages, but the most important one is on 45. Uh, when they're in Zosima's room and they're having this kind of uh, psychodrama in which everybody sort of is freaking out, uh, and at the middle of 45, uh, it's, it's um, Theodore's turn to freak out, and he says, that's why I'm a buffoon. It's from great shame, great elder, from shame. It's simply oversensitiveness which makes me rowdy. If, if I, I had only been sure that everyone would accept me as the kindest and wisest of men. Oh, Lord, what a good man I would have been. Teacher, he fell suddenly on his knees. What must I do to gain eternal life? So it looks like he's been... What he stays drunk and confused and uh, muddled, if you would like, and, and, and divert, diverts himself is that he really does worry about eternal life. There, there are other quotes. Keep your eyes open for them. I didn't have time to find them. Where, he's, where he asks at dinner whether there is hell and he worries about that. Uh, but let's go on with these. But notice in the next line the, the, uh, the narrator says it was difficult even now to decide whether he was joking or really moved. Was he joking or was he really moved? Both. Absolutely. It's clear that he, he cares a lot about eternal life and he can't face that it's a serious, and tries to make it an unserious issue just because he's so scared and it's so serious. And uh, as Zosima says to him at the bottom of uh, paragraph, above all, don't lie to yourself. The man who lies can't distinguish truth and so forth. And having no respect, he ceases to love and so forth and so forth. Uh, and he admits he's been lying in the middle of 46. I've been lying, lying my whole life long, every day of it, he says. But finally, I thought there was more to this. I've got to find it. Uh, 
Now, I guess that's all there. And I, I couldn't find the places. I got millions of page numbers, something like five different sets of page numbers for five different books. But I couldn't find the places where, particularly when he's talking to Alyosha at dinner and so forth, he gets overcome by, by fright. So anyway, it's clear enough that he, he wants not to think about the, whether he's leading a life that is going to take him to heaven or hell, that is, he doesn't have a, whether he's going to lead a life that ultimately leads to despair and, and misery or whether he's going to be able to shape up. He just doesn't want to face that, so he stays in this stupor. That, now, now I get to make the other interesting point I want to make, and it's, it's surprising. And uh, Again, it takes a while to notice it. There he, he has a metaphysical, or I guess it's their existential double. Somebody else who, like, always a woman, if it's because there are these sort of man-woman dyads. So a woman who is in a continual state of, of dithering confusion. Can you recognize that? She also has an interview with Zosima. And it, there's, some, there's something very similar in what she does and says and what he says to her. Okay, well, it's Mrs. Holocoff, of all things. I mean, she's a, she's, she's a society lady and not drunk and not rich and, not, and, and in, in, every way, in every kind of obvious way, not at all like old Karamazov. But it turns out that she's got exactly the same kind of strategy of covering up what's going on with her. This is on 48 we hear about her, that she's there and, and she's a woman of rank. That's all, I, that's all I need from that page. But on 49, up, oh, oh, 59, okay, on 59, we hear a long thing about her. She, and, and she's starting to tell her story to Zosima at the end of the middle paragraph. I'm suffering. Forgive me, forgive me, I'm suffering. And in a rush of emotion, she clasped her hands before him. You are suffering from what are you suffering? I suffer from lack of faith. Lack of faith in God? Oh, no, I dare not even think of that. But life after death is such an enigma, and no one can solve it. You're a healer. You're deeply immersed in the human soul, and so forth and so forth. Uh, the thought of life beyond the grave fills me with anguish, with terror. And it does hold Karamazov, too, if I could only find the passages, keep your eyes open, but it does. I don't know to whom to appeal and have not dared to all my life, and now I am bold enough to ask you, oh God, what will you think of me now? See anything strange in that outburst? She's not, she claims to be worrying about the, whether there's an afterlife and the state of her eternal soul, and what she's worrying about is whether she's making a fool of herself or not. And Zosima immediately says that. Don't worry about my opinion of you, said Father Zosima. I believe in the sincerity of your suffering. But, and he, he, that's one, she is sincerely suffering. Two, she's so uh, kind of diverted by, uh, by her social role and so forth that she can't just seriously uh, talk to him about it. And, uh, and he tries to tell her, you know, to, to shape up and, and pay attention. And she goes on telling you, telling him about all of her love and her love for Lisa, her daughter, and so forth. But it's clear that she, and you'll see it more and more if you keep your eye on her, 
has, is having the same kind of problem he is. She's really worried about the right relation of the self to the self and whether that was going to take you, never mind whether, they all tell, say it in terms of afterlife, but of course it means whether that's going to give you a fulfilled and blissful life or whether that's going to give you misery and uh, despair. And they were, but they're, they're worried about it, but they keep being distracted. They want to be distracted. And, and she's constantly distracted in a kind of dither over her daughter and her dither over herself, but never really focusing. I, I'm worried about the fact that everybody's sitting here looking at me not uh, nicely, but nobody's saying anything. I, I, I understand in a way that it's not very controversial what I'm saying. I'm just telling you what the book is saying. But, nobody has any comments they want to make to help me say more about these people or happen to know the page numbers where we find out more about these people. Well, okay, I'm going to go on. Uh, I'm tempted to go back to this one. I wonder if that's probably suicidal, but let's, let me just see if I can find out. I want to find out more about old Teramatsa. If I don't find it in a minute, I give up. Ah, oh, yeah, here's a good one. Uh, but uh, now I can't tell you where it is, in your, it, except that it's in the chapter of the Sensualists, the, the, the book three, the Sensualists, chapter one, about one page in, but it's a good example. At the bottom of, pay, of, of some page, was it, not, not, no, it won't be at the bottom of your page, because they managed to fix it so you can't tell where we are, but it, it, it says... Corrupt and often cruel in his lust, like some poisonous insect, Feyerwehr Karamazov was sometimes in moments of drunkenness overcome by superstitious terror and a moral convulsion which took an almost physical form. My soul simply quakes in my throat at, that, at those times, he used to say. And skipping a little, uh, one who had seen all his vices and knew his secrets but was ready in his devotion to overlook everything, not to impose him and above all not to reproach him for so-and-so and so-and-so. Uh, he's looking for such a person. To defend him from whom? From somebody unknown but terrible and dangerous. And that's, so that, I just want to give you another example so, you won't, so you'll believe me that old Karamazov is the, is the not willing to have a self, not, not willing to face up to being a self. Okay, and now we go on to, I'm seeing if I'm doing it in the right order. We want somebody, to, let's see if you remember, it'll help, help you all wake up. Here's a, here's a contest. Uh, so the first, the first relation of the self to the self is that it tries to forget the problem, that it has to take a stand and it'll go to hell or heaven, depending on what stand it takes. Now, what's the f next form of despair? That, was really dis that wasn't even really despair. What's the first form of real despair? So you must have it. Somebody has it in, in their hand, obviously. So read it. It's at the top, that little thing at the top. It's in, it's in despair, not willing to be itself. Can remember what that is? That's a despair of a negative relation, negative R2. Negative R2 is the self relates it to itself by denying half the self. I'm not really a body, just a mind. Or I'm not really a mind, just a body. Or I'm not really infinite, just 
finite or vice versa. So who is now, and this is harder, and you may not have read far enough to know, who, which of the brothers is in the despair of not wanting to have the self he's got, but to get rid of half of it? It's probably too early to ask. Okay, let's... Uh, Alexei, no, Alexei, no, he's not in despair about anything. Or do you mean Ivan? Oh, no, no, no. He hasn't got any trouble. What, what, why are you saying this? I'm interested. This is, we're talking about Alexei, Alyosha. Oh, I see. I see. Yes, when he's with Zosima, he's very much almost in tears because they're behaving so badly. I know what you mean now. But, but that's... But he, he doesn't, you know, when, he, when he's with old Karamazov, they get along fine. And he, Karamazov, old Karamazov says, you're the only one who doesn't despise me. It's interesting, by the way, in case I forget to say it. There's so much subtle detail. Uh, Ivan, who's an intellectual, despises old Karamazov. But Dmitri, who's a kind of passionate person, uh, what's his word for it? Uh, not disgust, but it's like that. Contempt? I don't know. Now I'm, I'd have to go back and look. Maybe it's Ivan who has contempt for old Karamazov and Dmitri to despise him. Keep your, they've all got, they all dislike Karamazov and got a different kind of emotion against him. Except Alyosha, who accepts him and affirms him, and that makes him a nicer person when Alyosha is around. But, but it's true that Alyosha on 44 of your book, is, as she says, embarrassed by the way his family is behaving at the, about ten lines down. Alyosha stood with hanging head on the verge of tears. What seemed to him strangest of all was that his brother, Ivan, on whom he had rested his hopes and on whom he had influence, and who alone had such influence on his father that he could have stopped him, sat quite unmoved with downcast eyes, apparently waiting with interest to see how it would end as though he had nothing to do with it. That's a very important speech about Ivan. Doesn't much matter that Alyosha is upset about it. It's just uh, that's only you know he's upset about it because he's so concerned that everybody should be loved and appreciated. What's interesting is what it shows about Ivan. It shows about Ivan that he thinks of himself as a kind of observer of everything. He's not involved. He's not responsible. He does, it's not part of his family that's, that's cracking up. He's just there as a witness, or as we might say, an eyewitness. Why am I making a sort of joke about or a pun or something about his being an eyewitness observer? Do you know? Uh, you remember how he, gets his, how he earns his living when he's a student? It's important. Yeah, let me, we'll get there. Uh, or, uh, but, so... First, I have to back up, and I think I got to go look anyway. Well, it's about Sophia, and I think I read enough about Sophia. I don't really need any more. No, so we can go to Ivan. I was just making sure we had his mother. Um, so they are so different, Ivan and Alyosha, that even old Karamazov forgets that they're brothers. 
but they have the same saintly mother, and, in this, and each one of them is seeking purity, but in a very different way. Uh, and each one of them has a problem with devils, which Dimitri does not have. So let's look at Ivan now. He is a self-made man, and it, we're now going to do some Dostoevsky sort of psychology. That is, he's very, he, he understands that people's early childhood experiences are very formative of their personality. And he thinks that they can be absolutely decisive, in fact. We'll, we'll see that when we, later. But already Ivan is trying to be independent. That's why he's supporting himself at the university and not asking his father for money. And why is he trying so hard to be independent? Well, because he, he felt that he was dependent on others, the relatives that he'd been sent to when his mother died, and he resents that. The interesting thing we'll get back to is the Al Alyosha is also completely de dependent on some relatives or other, and his reaction is entirely different. He, he just lets himself be taken care of by anybody. He's perfectly happy to be housed and fed and, and, and loved and whatever by anybody who wants to take care of him. Whereas Ivan doesn't want any dependence on anybody. Uh, so uh, he's, he's self-sufficient. And uh, he doesn't... Whereas Dimitri is, wants money from his father and always wants more money from his father, Ivan doesn't want that at all. Uh, and now, <clears throat> it turns out that, of course, what looks admirable about Ivan, and what I always thought was ad admirable when I, read, when I read this part of the book, is, from a Christian point of view, pride. I mean, who's right? Alyosha, who loves everybody and assumes that everybody's going to love him, and who would give any beggar or anybody who needed anything, whatever he had, and assume that if he goes around and needs a place to sleep or needs food, somebody will give it to him. You, you, Dostoevsky is so clever. So I, I think it's too clever to be something in his mind. I think it, he just writes out of this deep understanding of all these characters. But you'll discover that you, don't, you know always where Dimitri is staying and who's feeding and where he's getting his food. And uh, where, where Ivan is staying and how he supports himself, you never find, you never, never even, Dostoevsky or the narrator never even bothers to tell you where Alyosha got the nice clothes he got when he left the monastery, wh where he's sleeping. At one point he's, he feels hungry and he takes a roll out of his pocket and eats it, but I have no, we, we have no idea. Somebody gave it to him. Maybe when he goes by the bakery they give him food. Anyway, with Ivan, it's some, it's, it's pride, that is, he wants to be self-sufficient. He's, uh, he's not a Christian saint like Alyosha's on the way to being. He's a Greek hero, that is, in his mind. He's, he's the one who has enough power to take care of themselves. And he has, uh, here I wrote it down, contempt for his father. Ah, here I wrote down, Dimitri has loathing for his father. That's nice. Contempt is an intellectual way of hating, some, despising somebody. Uh, and loathing is this sort of visceral, visceral way of having a very negative relation. So now he's going on, uh, and he has contempt for his father. And Muizov, who's a kind of observer of, of things, who gets things right generally, uh, though he is an intellectual from, and likes Europe, which is a bad sign for Dostoevsky. 
Then I say Dimitri. Ooh, whoa, 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 what did I say about Dimitri? That he has not been converted properly. He is what? Lowly. Wait, I'm saying, no, I, I, I mean Dimitri. Ivan has contempt for his father. Dimitri has loathing for his father. That's the point. And Alyosha has love for his father. As despicable as he is, the old guy. And almost sort of saves him by way of that love, but not quite because he's, because bad things happen. But, uh, and, but Muzov says on page 15 of your book, about two-thirds down, he's proud, he used to say. I'm just reading it because I marked it. Uh, and he takes on this job to be self-sufficient. And he, he hates, in the middle of 13, being on other people's charity. And while I'm at it, and, and at the bottom of the page, he was forced to support himself all the time he was studying. Well, he was forced to do it in the sense that he wasn't going to, he, he was forced to do it by the fact that he wouldn't let anybody help him do it. It isn't clear that old Karamazov wouldn't give him money if he asked for it. He gives Dmitri some money. But anyway, he, he doesn't want anybody to help him. So he has a job. But just to fill you in on 13, he has a brilliant and unusual aptitude for learning like all of us. That's again why I, while I identified with him, I said, ah, yes, he's going to go to a good, he goes to a good university. He entered the university and so forth. But now comes the really revealing thing. What job does he take to support himself? I wouldn't be harping on this so much if it isn't going to turn out to be very important later. So at the top of 14, However that may have been, Ivan was by no means despondent and succeeded in getting work, at first giving lessons and afterwards getting paragraphs on street incidents into the newspapers under the signature of eyewitness. Remember I just said he was behaving as if he was an eyewitness to the freak out in, in Zosima's cell. In general, he behaves as if he's an eyewitness to the world. Uh, Dostoevsky's absolutely brilliant to get him that job. People are doing things that they're very involved in. Lovers are quarreling or kissing and people are stealing apples and chasing them. And you can imagine the kind of little stories he writes, little stories that are little dramas. But they're not his drama. He just stands back and writes about them. And that's his way of being in the world. He's, his way of being in the world is just to be an eyewitness. Uh, and oh, you'll see how important that is. I'm just curious, how many have got up to the part where... Uh, uh, wait, let me think a minute how to describe it. Uh, no, I can't describe it without going to too much trouble. But you, you'll see him putting himself in the position. Oh, yeah, the part where he's t talking to Alyosha in the, ta in the tavern uh, about uh, giving back his ticket to the world. Have you got to that yet? Not yet. Okay, well, then we won't talk about that yet. Uh, so he's a, but he's a detached spectator. He's a, of life. Uh, and... Uh, when things are happening, he's observing and taking notes on them. Uh, so, and Alyosha, of course, couldn't just stand there and observe what was going on in the cell. He, he's completely upset. I think I already read the, uh, that line, but I'll just go back to see if I'll tell you. Yes, it's a, that was what I read, where Yohan is sitting there as if this isn't his business, it isn't his family, it's just an event, uh, where Alyosha is on the verge of tears. And you get the hint already that Dostoevsky thinks that this kind of self-sufficient detachment 
that Ivan has is a bad way to behave. But just how bad it is as a way to behave isn't clear yet. I mean, it's about as bad a way to behave as you can get in Dostoevsky's world. And he's an intellectual. That's not bad. Dostoevsky doesn't mind intellectuals. Uh, and so where are we? Um, but, he, but, but it's interesting and it's, it's in a way bad that, he, that what he's doing is philosophy. And why is that bad? Well, because philosophy is a kind of ab, uh, observing of everything. If, if, if you do philosophy, you sort of step back and reflect on other people in your own life and, and uh, current events, and all from a detached way, at least if you're doing Greek philosophy. And Ivan is like a Greek philosopher. At one point, Miusov says about him, he has his idea, where Plato always was talking about the, the ideas. So Ivan is a kind of philosopher, a kind of Platonist, which means he's chosen the intellectual, detached, objective capacity of the self. And he's dumped or rejected the involved, emotional aspect of himself. And now we're getting close to, remember, the issue. So what's his relation to the self? Well, it's a relation that wants to deny half of it. It's, it's in despair at failing to get rid of half the self, but trying. So, because we, we will see, you've got to keep all this in mind, well, you have to ask yourself, well, okay, so, we, so Yvonne wants to get rid of the evolved, emotional, uh, uh, impulsive, sort of lower immediacy, whatever, however you want to describe it, side of himself. Can he do it? And what happens when he tries to do it? Those are all things that are going to go on hundreds and hundreds of pages from where you are, so I can't say more about them yet. Um, so where am I then? He's, uh, he, he has, they say, some goal. Uh, and he's got some question that he doesn't know how to answer. Let's go to the Zosima thing. I didn't find all these page numbers because I didn't have time, and it's going to be a lifetime job. Uh, but... I want to go to the place where uh, Zosima says something to, to Ivan about Ivan having, help me find it, about Ivan having a kind of goal which is hard to achieve. We have to get into the Zosima section. Where is it in this book? Somebody tell me. Somebody must know. What? About 40. Okay, now in there somewhere, around 40, you find when Zosma starts talking to Yvonne, it may be at another time, a different time in, this, in his uh, monk's quarters. I doubt it, though. I bet it's in here somewhere. Well, if it were, I wouldn't see it. That's the trouble, because I didn't have time to move all my marks 
to the next page. Zosima says to him, you are seeking a certain goal which is very hard to find and achieve. And the question is, will you achieve it or not? And Ivan is sort of struck by this question because he sees that he sees that this is that Zosima is, of course, understood his kind of self. Well, I'm, I'm going to go on to one more thing just so that you can get used to it. That is, Ivan is seeking a kind of perfection and a kind of purity, which is a Greek Platonic kind of purity. That is, he's trying to get rid of everything lackey-like, uh, lower immediate-like, and so forth in himself. And he can't do that. Uh, and Zosima sees that he can't do it. Um, I wonder if I can find this by... Let's just see if it's on page 70 in this one. No, I'm not going to find it. Well, I can come back to it next time. I, I want to. There's something I do know how to find that I want to leave you with as a kind of puzzle. I'll come back next time to the question of the two kinds of purity, the kind that Alyosha is trying to find, get and the kind of Ivan is trying to get. I'll, I'll tell you roughly so you can keep your eyes open for it. There, German has two words for purity. One is cleanliness, Reinheit in German. I can write it on the board next time. And the other is purity, which is in German, Lauterkeit. But what I want to say is cleanliness, purity, is getting out all the dirt. It's what how the cleaners do, Reinigung in German. They clean out the dirt. Ivan wants to clean out everything that's dirt in himself, everything that's imperfect, everything that gets him involved with the world. And he wants to be this perfect ideal spectator, like, a, like God and like a philosopher. Alyosha wants to be pure. That means he wants to get rid of all the, the impulses which he, which he considers I know, dirty and demeaning and selfish and so forth. And that's, he wants to transform them into loving impulses. And, and, and Zosima says you can do that. That's, that's part of the Christian hope. You could be reborn uh, pure. And, but the difference is, that we're back to Ivan. Ivan is trying to get rid of half of himself. He's not trying to take it over and purify it. And, but the, they, now we're back to this mystery of how they come from the same mother. They come from the same mother because, as I said, in, in general, sort of, I don't know what, to, what word, cleaning up your act, no, that's too much Reinheit. Purifying yourself, that's too much purity. We don't have one word that I know of, but in general, they've, they've, they're two versions of uh, something. If anybody finds the word, come and tell me in office hours or send me email. But it's going to have to have cleaning and purifying as, their, as two utterly different versions of it. Okay, now I want to give, but here's the puzzle I want to give you while there are four minutes left. I just want to read you 
we, we, who is the next person? That's what I want to stop help you think about before we get together again. Who's the next despair kind? Hmm? It's, it's, well, it's the despair of trying to get the two parts of the self together on your own. Now, by elimination, really, that, if that isn't Ivan and it isn't Alyosha, that's got to be Dmitri. Now, let me read you the description of Dmitri on 73 when he comes onto the scene. And then we'll stop. Dmitri, young man of 28, of medium height and agreeable appearance, looked older than he was. He was muscular and strong, yet there was something not healthy about his face, which was rather thin. His large eyes had an expression of determination, and yet there was a vague look in them, too. At the bottom, something sullen in his eyes. People who saw something sullen in his eyes were startled by his sudden laugh. Then at the top of 74, a certain strained look in his face was easy to understand that moment. And then at the end of that paragraph, the the prosecutor says, he is of unstable and unbalanced mind. What is the characteristic of that description of Ivan as he comes on the screen? So it comes on the stage or whatever. Well, let's, he's, he seems to be old and yet young, uh, determined and yet vague, sullen and yet laughing, and so forth. Contradictions. Who said it? Okay, yes. He's a bundle of contradictions. And that's exactly what, uh, what he's going to turn out to be. He's a self trying to get himself together, and he can't get himself together, and that's messing up his life. Uh, just one more, just, I have two minutes, on 120 of your book. He, he says, in so many words, that he's an insect and an angel. And he says, at the middle of, one, of 120, I'm an insect, Alyosha, and we Karamazovs are insects, and, but beauty is terrible, skipping a little. The, here the boundaries meet. All contradictions exist side by side. And then he says at the bottom of 120, man is broad, too broad, I'd have him narrower. So Ivan is, and knows he is, a kind of walking contradiction of angel and insect. You can see it on the self-chart. And he wants to keep, he wants to somehow keep, keep all that. He doesn't want to throw any of it out, but he, want, but he wants to get it together. And he can't get it together. And so he's in, he's in bad shape. Okay, now you keep reading and I will keep marking up passages. <laughs>